0: Hey friends, welcome back to another episode of The Bible Unmuted. Super excited to be with you once again as we continue our tour through the Book of Romans. We are going to be in verses 14 through 33 today. And I tell you, this was a tough episode because um, I I was halfway tempted to divide it up into two sections or two two different episodes. Uh, The reason I didn't though is because we really need all of verses 14 through 33 to be in connected with one another because um, there's so much here that if we just listen to part of it and come back a week later, then you know some very important details could be missed or forgotten. And so anyway, I wanted to keep it all together today. And so this is one episode, verses 14 through 33 of chapter 9. And in fact, I, I, I probably should have kept all of Romans 9 in one big episode, but that would be one big episode. And I, I'm kind of hesitant to do those. So um, Although a couple weeks ago, I did a pretty good job at at, uh, making a really, really uh, long episode. Um, But anyway, I felt I did feel like that was necessary. But anyway, um, on 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 this section, though, um, verses 14 through 33, uh, it's it really is important to keep everything together as a whole, because Romans is like a a, a, like like a jungle. Right. I mean, take the Amazon jungle, for example. I mean, you can spend your entire existence down on the on the bed of the jungle, like on the floor bed. You could be looking at the bark of the trees. You could be looking at each tree. You can look at all the critters around the trees and the soil in which the tree is planted and everything like that. So you could spend a lot of time going from tree to tree in the Amazon forest. It, there's also um, beauty to behold by looking at the Amazon forest from above, like you know, 50,000 feet or even higher. I mean, maybe from the space station or something, you could really see the richness of this big ecosystem called the Amazon rainforest. I think Romans is a lot like that as well. Truth be told, we could spend you know hours and hours and hours uh, going from tree to tree to tree, verse to verse to verse. Um, as I said, I could split this episode into more than one episode. But at the same time, I think one mistake that people make is that when it comes to reading romans we can get so caught up in maybe maybe the trees okay in individual tree that we forget the big story the big picture and i think that that big picture just simply cannot be compromised i think the big picture of romans must be held intact okay because um it's such an important story that paul is telling throughout the whole book or the whole letter uh that um, it, it really helps us to think, think better about, um, Christianity as a whole. Like what is Christianity? What is, what does it mean to be part of the family of God? I think that is part of that big picture. And I, I just, I think so many mistakes have been made by ignoring the big picture there. So I, I, I think you'll see what I mean when we get into this text today. I I keep, you know, referring to, um, other parts of Romans. So when we get into this passage today, I'm constantly going to be pointing back to Romans one and Romans two and Romans four, because I we have to keep the big picture to understand, especially this section of scripture. Um, anyway, hope hope it's enjoyable. I hope it's uh, a good resource for you um, as well. So um, I want to say a couple things before we dive in, though. Um, I know a number of you have emailed me this past month or maybe past two months. And I have been very, very slow to respond to emails. It's just been, I said this before, but it's been really, really busy. It's been a busy season. So um, uh, I apologize for that. If, if you have uh, um, some time, maybe shoot me another email just to um, uh, jog my, my memory. And I'll be happy to get back to you ASAP as soon as possible. Um, again, sorry about that. It's It's been crazy. It's been um, super, super um, a good season, but it's just been... Uh, been, uh, been busy. So I've got an interview coming up with the one and the only Dr. Sandra Glahn. Um We are going, I think that this will be recorded at the end of October. So it probably won't be released until the 1st of November, but it will be well worth the wait. So uh, Dr. Glahn has written a book called Nobody's Mother, Artemis of the Ephesians in Antiquity and the New Testament. Um, this is going to be a great book to um, dialogue with her about because she's done some incredible research on, Artemis, um, uh, the Greek goddess uh, of antiquity, and it actually that that research has a lot of bearing upon how we understand uh, parts of the New Testament. So uh, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. So so incredibly excited. Um, if you're not familiar with this book, uh, or if you've not heard any announcements about it yet, definitely go online, pre-order the book. It's actually not out yet. I don't I don't think it is. It might it might be out, coming out this week. Um, first week of October, maybe second week of October. I think it's October 10th. I don't know. Anyway, go check that out on Amazon. Um, but here's here's, what's the, here's what the book is about. I'll read the description here. It says, um, this is from the back blurb on the book. Um, okay, so it says this, some Christians think Paul's reference to saved through childbearing in 1 Timothy 2.15 means that women are slated primarily for delivering and raising children. Alternative readings, however, sometimes fail to build on the best historical and textual evidence. Sandra Glahn thinks we have misunderstood Paul by misunderstanding the context context to which he wrote. The key lies in getting to know a mysterious figure who haunts the letter, the goddess Artemis of the Ephesians. Based on groundbreaking research, nobody's mother demonstrates how better background information bolsters faithful interpretation. Combining scholarly exploration with spiritual autobiography, Glahn takes readers on a journey to ancient Ephesus and across early church history. Unveiling the cult of Artemis and how early Christians related to it clarifies the radical countercultural fellowship the New Testament writers intended Christ's church to be. This book is for those who want to avoid sacrificing a high view of scripture while working to reconcile conflicting models of God's view of women. Though the unexpected channel of Paul's advice to Timothy— and the surprising help of an ancient Greek myth, Nobody's Mother lays a biblical foundation for men and women serving side by side in the church. This is going to be a great book. I can't wait to to dive into it myself. I'm going to start reading it um, uh, this week, in fact, and then be ready to go to chat with her further at the end of the month. So be on the lookout for that. It's going to be a great book. Go ahead and pre-order a copy. Highly recommend it. Nobody's Mother is bound to be a conversation starter um, and it'll help us to um, come to these passages of the New Testament um, with maybe fresh eyes. So that's always good to do. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, without further ado, let's jump into Romans chapter 9, verses 14 through 33. So last week we left off at verse 14. We went through one, verses 1 through 13 last week. If you haven't listened to that episode, definitely have to listen to that one before you get to this one. Okay, well, let's look at, uh, we'll start off by looking at Romans 9 verses 14 through 15. Paul says, what then are we to say? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Okay, so this is in response to the Jacob and Esau quotation. Now, we talked a lot about that last week, where, you know, he says, Jacob, have I loved Esau, have I hated it. That was a quotation from Malachi chapter one. So this text I just read is a response to that. You know, is there injustice on God's part then? And Paul says, by no means. Now, we remembered that this was not about individual election, but corporate Christological election. And I drew a lot of attention back to Romans chapter 2 in that last episode. Romans 2 is going to be important for today's episode as well, and it's going to be important for how we understand this passage in particular. So, recall that Romans 2 would have been controversial to Paul's Jewish critics. It would have been very controversial. The Jews of Paul's era believed very strongly in performing works of Torah. You know, things like circumcision, for example, was the sign of the covenant, it was the sign of election. Well, in Romans chapter 2, Paul makes the case that it is possible for uncircumcised Gentiles to be counted as members of the covenant, counted that is as righteous and thus as members of the elect community. Let's read again um, Romans chapter 2 verses 25 through 29. He says, circumcision indeed is a value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if those who are uncircumcised keep the requirements of the law, will not their uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then uh, Then those who are physically uncircumcised but keep the law will condemn you that have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is true circumcision something external and physical. Rather, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and real circumcision is a matter of the heart. It is spiritual and not literal. Such a person receives praise not from others, but from God. Okay, that's a chunk of text there. That's Romans 2, 25-29. Now, one response from a Jewish critic would be, Okay, Paul, so you say that God would grant covenant status to uncircumcised Gentiles, right? Well, how could God do that? On what basis could he welcome Gentiles into the covenant family without them like at the same time performing works of Torah like circumcision? I mean, wouldn't that mean that God is unrighteous? That is, wouldn't it mean that he is unfaithful to the covenant that he has set up, that he has promised? So that question would definitely have been on the mind of many Second Temple Jewish people. And this is why Paul says what he does in chapter 9, verse 14 through 15. I'll read it again. What then are we to say? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So here, injustice, the word injustice, it should be understood as unrighteous. That's the word in Greek, adikia. Is there unrighteousness on God's part? Is there injustice on God's part? And Paul says that actually there is no unrighteousness on God's part for admitting Gentiles, you know, of which the second born Jacob served as a type and shadow. There's no unrighteousness on God's part for admitting Gentiles into the covenant. Now, why is there no unrighteousness on God's part? Well, Paul says God can simply do whatever he wants. He's God, and he can therefore act freely with respect to his plan which is based on grace. He can grant salvation to Gentiles, all by his incredible act of mercy. And this is a mercy, by the way, that was operative in the election of the Jewish patriarchs. It was operative in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, just like we have seen before in past episodes. Now, this is where the quotation from Exodus 33, 19 comes in. Now, in that passage, Paul, uh, I'm sorry, in that passage, Moses asks to be shown God's glory. In response, God says this, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you the name, the Lord, or Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Now, the idea is that God's glory is his goodness, his grace, and his mercy. The word glory is kavod, and it means heaviness. God's heaviness or his weightiness is epitomized by his goodness, by his grace and mercy. And the idea in the context of Romans is that God's glory is displayed in his willingness to include the nations into his covenant plan, a plan of which is executed by means of Israel. I mean, this is the Genesis 11:12 narrative on full display. So in reality, What Paul is saying in Romans is this, look, God can let the Gentiles in without respect to their works of Torah. After all, election is based on grace, not circumcision. It's not based on work of Torah. And moreover, here in Romans 9, we cannot fail to see the Christological element. This is so important. The basis of covenant faithfulness is Christ, not Torah. And if any Jewish interlocutor would object to this, Paul can remind them again that even Abraham was called and declared righteous before he was circumcised. He was declared righteous well before Torah was even given. I mean, this is, this is Romans chapter 4. And Isaac himself, yeah, I mean, yeah, he was circumcised, but his very existence, his birth was a miracle. It was something based on the divine promise. It was not based on human effort. It was not, in other words, based on the works or the abilities of the elderly Abraham or Sarah. And the same goes with Jacob. He was second-born himself and was therefore unqualified to be the inheritor of the covenant promises. But as it turns out, even second-born children can be qualified to enter the covenant if they are qualified on the basis of God's own free grace. And indeed, that's exactly what happened for Jacob. And if that could happen for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that is, if their election was based on grace, then why should a righteous Jew look down upon his younger brother, the Gentile? Should the righteous elder brother not welcome home the wayward younger brother, who even though he spent so much of his life wallowing among the unclean animals, should such a younger brother not be welcomed home if he repents and comes to the Father in total dependence on the Father's mercy? Paul would say, absolutely, he should be welcomed. Even Gentiles can be welcomed home. Even they can be counted righteous on the basis of grace. After all, that's how Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were welcomed into the covenant themselves. And that's why Paul says what he says in the next verse, verse 16. He says, So it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who shows mercy. Paul is not yet that explicit about the Gentile question, but it's very much present even here. Like I said earlier, this was the working narrative which began all the way in Romans chapter 1 and especially got going in Romans chapter 2. That Gentile question is still in view here. And Paul's going to make that very explicit momentarily at the very end of the, of the chapter. But we'll wait for that. But to ground everything he said so far, he appeals to Scripture, uh, namely Exodus chapter 9. So let's read... Um, uh Romans 9:17 and 18 first. It says, "For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I have raised you up for the very purpose of showing my power in you, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he chooses and he hardens the heart of whomever he chooses." This passage circles back around to where we began. God can do whatever he wants with his mercy. But for precise context, let's look closer at the original Exodus passage. Here's what Exodus chapter 9 verse 13 through 17 says. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go so that they may worship me. For this time I will send all my plagues upon you yourself and upon your officials and upon your people so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. But this is why I've let you live, to show you my power and to make my name resound through all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Okay, so the point in quoting part of this text in Romans 9 is that Paul wants to connect the entire discussion back to God's glory. So Paul uses the Pharaoh text as an example of a time when God displayed his glory. But why this text? Well, the reason is because it's a passage that shows God's glory through deliverance. It shows God's glory through salvation. God shows his grace and goodness and mercy upon the entire nation of Israel by hardening Pharaoh's heart and thus delivering Israel out of his hands. This is relevant to Paul's discussion because remember, Paul wants to show how inclusion into the covenant family of God, quote, depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who shows mercy. And if there was ever an event that displayed the weakness of people and the power of God, it would have been the Exodus event. It was there when Israel's situation was hopeless, and it was there when God officially called out Israel as His own. Just like God called Abraham to a vocation of election by grace, so also He is officially forming and shaping the nation of Israel by grace alone so that they too can carry on the Abrahamic vocation. And if God can save Israel by means of sheer mercy like this, can he not also do the same for the Gentiles? And again, keep the larger picture in mind, okay? Keep every, get a 50,000 or more foot view of the situation. The whole point in this passage is to point out how election is based on Christ and how the Gentiles, the non-elect, it's about how they can be included into the covenant by grace and not by works. But let's focus a little bit more on verse 18. That's the verse that says, so then he has mercy on whomever he chooses, and he hardens the heart of whomever he chooses. How do we make sense of this idea of hardening? Well, I don't think we need to be too confused by it. The reason is because Paul has already talked about it many chapters ago, namely in Romans chapter 1. And I think in that chapter, he tells us how hardening works. So let's reread some of the relevant portions of that passage. I'll be reading from Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 26, and verse 28. Okay, here's what it says. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of those who by their wickedness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Ever since the creation of the world, his eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things he has made. So they are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling a mortal human being or birds or four footed animals or reptiles. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the degrading of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen for this reason, God gave them up to degrading passions. And then he spends a couple of verses talking about the result of this being handed over to their sin. You can see this in uh, verse 26, 27. And then in verse 28, he says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind and to things that should not be done. And then Paul gives more examples of this result of being hardened. You could read that in verses 29 through 32. Okay. So, in my opinion, what we see here is an example of how divine hardening works. Because the people in Romans chapter 1 did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind and to, to, and to things that should not be done. Now, when people do not acknowledge God's godness, they by definition run away from the light, and in consequence to that, they embrace that which is evil, they embrace that which is dark. And God's giving them up is simply granting them what they want. In many ways, God's hardening of people is nothing more than honoring their free will. They have freely, in a libertarian sense, they have freely chosen to continue resisting God. And as a result, God has said, okay, if that's what you want, then I'll grant you your desire to live a life apart from me. Now here, I think we have to remember Eleanor Stump's conception of the human will which she, she, again, she draws upon uh, Thomas Aquinas for that formulation. And you'll need to go back a couple of weeks ago uh, on, the, on the episode on free will to get more of that um, uh, as a reminder. But we have to keep all that in mind here. Okay, so just, just as, a, as a brief um, um, uh, look back at that, basically, you know, the idea is that the will cannot come to God. The person, because of a tainted will, cannot come to God. God must draw each person to faith but the will can, it can choose to stop itself. It can go dormant. It can shut down. Okay, this is the act of quiescence. It cannot come to God, but it can stop resisting God's calling. Let's put it this way. A person cannot come to God, but he or she can choose either A, to continue resisting God, or B, to stop resisting. Okay that third option, you know, going to God, that's not an option. Okay. Let's just, let's just say that's not an option. Um, and that would be my preference, but I'm still going to say that a person can either continue you know, freely libertarian uh, with a libertarian sense of free will. They can freely continue resisting God or they can stop resisting God. Now in Romans one, perhaps we have something very similar going on. I mean, we have people who don't freely choose to stop resisting. They spiral out of control and continue rebelling against the acknowledgement of God's glory, of God's godness. And so, God continues to let them have what they want, namely a life without God. If they don't stop resisting God's grace, then they will remain as they are. And this remaining as they are is hardening. Now, when we think of Pharaoh's story, this is pretty much what we see there too. God wants to make his name known in Egypt. He wants everyone to know that he alone is Yahweh, the one true God. But Pharaoh fails to sincerely acknowledge God's godness. And even if you don't think that Pharaoh has the capacity to freely come to God in repentance, then then okay. You can still say, logically, that Pharaoh freely fails to put his resistance into dormancy. and, And instead of doing that, he freely chooses to continue in his rebellion okay, this preserves a libertarian view of, of uh, free will, um, but, it, but it also um, gives a prime of place to God's grace alone drawing the sinner to repentance. Monergism. Monergism just means it's God's work alone. And yet a person still has libertarian free will. Again, uh, this is the, the Eleanor Stump stuff uh, on um, in, in her wonderful chapter in the uh, Augustine, uh, Cambridge Companion to Augustine. She's got a chapter there on free will. I talk a lot about that about two episodes ago. So go back for a refresher if you're interested. Okay, so um, yeah, back to Romans 9 here. We have to remember that this is all in the context of Paul's lament about how many in Israel do not believe in Jesus. It's Israel's hardening that's at the forefront of this discussion. The first part of Romans 9 records Paul's anguish in this regard. And there's no reason to think that that lament is not also a part of this discussion about divine hardening it is part of that discussion. That's part of the context. So in other words, this is not some philosophical discussion about divine predetermination or divine reprobation. Okay, this is all about Israel's specific failure to come to Christ. That's the context for Paul. Hardening, therefore, has to do with Israel's refusal to accept God's Christological grace. That's what this is all about. Okay, it's not like a philosophical discussion about free will. I mean, if you want to go there, you can. I mean, we have categories. You know, Eleanor Stump has done a beautiful job in giving us categories for how to think like that. It's just, it's just really important, though, that we keep this in the theological context that Paul has said it, uh, in, which, in which Paul has said it. Um, so, yeah, keep that in mind. Okay, so in, in that vein, we have to also keep in mind that, that for Paul, hardening is not necessarily permanent. You don't get that impression when you read all of Romans 9, 10, and 11. Okay, I mean, Paul does not think that just because the unbelievers in Israel are part of a mass hardening, that this means that they cannot come to faith. He, he seems to assume that some will, in fact, come to faith. I mean, it, and it also works the other way around. He says, um, and he actually warns believing Gentiles, Gentile Christians, he warns them, those who are part of the elect, he warns them to watch out for any arrogance that might creep in because God could cut them out just as easily as he grafted them in. So all of that has to be kept in mind. And when we get to Romans 10 and Romans 11, we'll see that more clearly as well. Hey friends, I hope this episode is a blessing and encouragement to you. I hope that every episode of The Bible Unmuted gives you something fresh to consider and something deep to ponder. My goal is to offer food for thought to give listeners the tools they need to be faithful interpreters of scripture. I cherish your continued prayers for this ministry and thanks so much to everyone who lifts me up in prayer each week. If you're finding this podcast to be helpful for your study of Scripture, consider leaving a review of the show and sharing with your friends. Perhaps even consider becoming a Patreon member. This will give you access to some cool stuff and it helps support the podcast. You can become a patron for as little as $5 a month. Every Patreon supporter gets access to a monthly bonus episode, as well as an invitation to a book club, where we come together periodically and chat about a book that we read together. There are various levels of support too, which will get you access to other things. You have the option to join monthly Zoom meetings with me, where we come together and discuss all sorts of fun biblical theological stuff. Another tier of support will get your name thrown into monthly book giveaways as well. All to say, there are lots of cool features for patrons of The Bible Unmuted. If you're interested, visit patreon.com slash thebibleunmuted or follow the Patreon link in the description for this episode. Thanks so much for your support. This brings us to verses 19 through 21. You will say to me then, why then does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? But who indeed are you? a human being, to argue with God. Well, what is molded say to the one who molds it? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one object for special use and another for ordinary use? Here, Paul employs the metaphor of a potter of clay. Now, this metaphor can be found in Jeremiah 18. It can be found in Isaiah 29. Um, it can be found, um, I mean, it's, just a, it's a prominent metaphor. Uh, for many Jew- many Jews, and I think we would do well to familiarize ourselves with these passages, Jeremiah eighteen and Isaiah twenty nine, because it'll help us broaden our understanding of how the metaphor is used specifically here in Romans. So, so we're going to do that. But first, I should point out that many folks sincerely think that this metaphor of potter and clay is proof that God not that that God not only has the ability, but he actually makes the practice of shaping individual people such that they are either A, predestined to hell, or B, predestined to heaven. That is, I guess you can put it like this. Many people think that before a person has a choice to make with regard to their eternal destination, God has already molded them in such a way that they will make the choice He ultimately wants them to have. Some are therefore shaped in order to choose to eternally rebel, and others are shaped in order to choose salvation. And under that interpretation, the order is important. Divine shaping comes first, then human choice necessarily follows from that shaping. So the question before us today is, does that interpretation, does that order of events, does it fully capture the situation? Well, let's look at Isaiah chapter 29, verses 15 through 16. And I'm going to be reading from the Lexham English Septuagint. It says this, Woe to those who make deliberation deeply, and their deeds will be in darkness, and they will say, who has seen us, and who will know us, or what we are doing? Will you not be reckoned as the clay of the potter? Surely the shape will say not to the one who shapes it, you did not shape me. Or the thing made to the one who makes it, you did not make me intelligently. Okay, so this is that that passage out of which Paul takes that line. You know, will the will the clay say to the potter, why have you made me like this? This is where he gets that, arguably. Um, it, it's not like exactly a quotation there, but you know, some scholars like to point to it as such. Anyway, notice the point here about the potter and the clay. It's not used in the context of, of, of eternally predestining people to heaven and hell. That, that doesn't seem to be the context of Jeremiah here. It's actually just used in, in the context of, to simply say, look, God knows what you are doing in secret, and you cannot keep secrets from God. He's the potter, after all, and you're just the clay. And if, indeed, Paul is quoting from Isaiah 29 uh, here, I think all Paul is doing is taking a section from a well-known prophet, and he's using it in a similar way to say something like this. Look, God's smarter than you. Don't question him. And, And that is consistent with my view, I think, about God's choice to... Pivot election around Christ and not around Torah. To the Jews who are adamant about law keeping, Paul's concept of election is controversial. But, but what right does the clay have to question the potter? Uh, and they don't have any, any right to do that, okay? Now, okay, a careful reader of Isaiah 29 might notice that there does seem to be a part in that context where God is in fact hardening and blinding people. So, for example, uh, let's read Isaiah 29, 9 through 12. It says, Be feeble and out of your senses. Be intoxicated, not from sakura or from wine, because the Lord has made you drunk with the wind of bewilderment. And he will close the eyes of them and their prophets and their leaders, those who see the secrets. And all these things to you will be like the words of the sealed document, which if they give it to a person who understands letters and say, Read these things, he will say, I am unable to read it for it has been sealed. And this document will be given into the hands of a person who does not understand letters. And he will say, he will say to him, read this. And he will say, I do. I do not understand letters. Okay. Does this mean that God is doing this hardening apart from their sin? What, you know, what's going on here? Is that what's happening? In other words, is this divine intoxication, something that comes before Israel's sin so that they will continue eternally into sin? Well, I don't, think that that's the best way to see that. And and to see why, let's read the the next couple of verses, verses 13 through 14. It says, "And the Lord said, This people approaches me with their mouth and with their lips they honor me, but their heart remains far from me, and they are pious to me to no avail, teaching human rules and instructions. Because of this, look, I will continue to change this people, and I will change them, and I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will hide the intelligence of the intelligent." Okay, so I think the point here is something uh, perhaps I made before. God will harden people if they freely insist on resisting God. You know, He says their heart remains far from Me. That was the the passage above that we just um, looked at a moment ago. God will give them what they freely want, and when it says that God will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the word wise there is used as a reference, I think, to their pride. So, God's judgment is a response to pride. And two, when you read the rest of Isaiah 29, God's hardening will give way to restoration. So, all of this, I think, is quite consistent with what Paul is doing in Romans 9 through 11. And if Paul is quoting from Isaiah 29 in Romans 9 verse 20, then I think the best option is to see him as continuing that same thought process. But let's also turn to Jeremiah 18, where the potter metaphor is seen more clearly. And in fact, I think that this will shed some incredible light on how Paul is using the metaphor too. Uh, So I think this is super helpful. So Jeremiah 18 verses 1 through 11. Listen very carefully uh, to this discussion. It's super, super important. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, come down to the potter's house and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house and there he was working at his will. The vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand and he reworked it into another vessel, as seemed good to him. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Can I not do with you, O house of Israel, just as this potter has done, says the Lord? Just like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. At one moment I may declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it. But if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will change my mind about the disaster that I intended to bring on it. And at another moment, I may declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it. But if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will change my mind about the good that I had intended to do it. Now, therefore, say to the people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord, look, I am a potter shaping evil against you and devising a plan against you. Turn now all of you from your evil way and amend your ways and your doings. Okay. So the point seems to be rather clear. I think it's crystal clear, in fact. Yes, God is the potter, and he does shape people for destruction and for salvation. But, according to Jeremiah, that shaping is in response to a free decision on the part of people who stop resisting God and his grace. This is not inconsistent with what we've said previously about free will. The main takeaway is this. If we think that shaping precedes any and all free decisions on the part of people, then we're not thinking like Jeremiah. And it doesn't seem it doesn't appear that we're that we would also be thinking like Paul either. I mean, Paul's idea of hardening doesn't seem to be eternal, and Paul's idea of hardening and reprobation seems to be used as a response to human unwillingness to stop resisting divine grace. I mean, again, hardening for Paul doesn't seem to be eternal. I mean, when we get to Romans 11, we'll see that. Um, And uh, in in Romans 1, we see how hardening and reprobation seems to be used as a response to that human unwillingness um, to to stop resisting divine grace and to acknowledge God as God. Okay, but the point in all of this, I I think, and, and I'm not the only scholar to think like this, The point is that God has the right to judge people who do not stop resisting the divine grace found in Christ. That's the context of Romans 9. We have to keep the Jew-Gentile context in the conversation here. Most of the time it's missed, but it's very much here. Many Jews were very critical of Paul for saying grace and election is based upon Christ. But for Paul, who are we to question God if that's the way God had long intended for grace to come? What right does anyone have to question God's Christological plan of salvation? What right does anyone have to question how God has established election upon the rock that is Christ? The answer for Paul is nobody has that right. We are just clay after all. And God is the maker of the plan of salvation. And that plan of salvation pivots around and is centered around Jesus the Messiah. Okay, let's look at Romans 9, 22 through 29. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience the objects of wrath that are made for destruction? And what if he has done so in order to make known the riches of his glory for the objects of mercy, which he has prepared before, beforehand for glory? Now note, let me, let me just make a quick comment here uh, about these two verses, 22 and 23, that I just read you got to keep in mind all that we've said a a, a moment ago about Isaiah and Jeremiah. Okay. This whole preparing for destruction, preparing for glory, that kind of stuff. Keep everything in mind. Okay. Okay. Let's uh, jump to verse 24. Including us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called children of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the children of Israel were like the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved for the Lord will execute his sentence on the earth quickly and decisively. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left survivors to us, we would have fared like Sodom and been made like Gomorrah. Okay. So there's so much to say here. And again, I'm afraid that if we get too much into the weeds, we'll miss the overall point. So let's get straight to the big picture. Um, yeah. Okay. Here's the big picture. I have so many thoughts. Like I get distracted as I'm, as I'm thinking them, thinking them through here. Um, okay. Big picture. Here's the big picture. We have to once again, remember that Paul still has in mind the Jew Gentile question, you know, who are the elect, and how are they identified as the elect? Are they identified as, um, are through works of Torah? Are they identified through Christ? Are the elect those who keep Torah, or are the elect those who uh, pledge allegiance to Christ? Don't forget the continuing line of thought. Paul has been all along giving a lesson on, on how election works in the Old Testament. Remember earlier earlier in Romans nine. Paul led his readers to see how Isaac and Jacob have been elected and how Ishmael and Esau have been rejected. Isaac and Jacob are counted among God's people. They are his people. But Ishmael and Esau are not part of God's elect people. They are not his people. But what is fascinating is how how Christ reverses the plight of the Gentiles. Many uncircumcised Gentiles are part of the elect now listen again to verses 25 and 26. Those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called children of the living God. This is a reference to the Gentiles as the context suggests. Now, now Paul is quoting Hosea here. Hosea originally was talking about the Israelites, but Paul is using it to refer to the Gentiles. There's a ton of things to say about that. We won't get into that, that. That's part of the weeds here. That's part of the Uh, the little, the the important, but that's part of the trees, but I want to keep a big picture. Okay. If you want to know how I kind of solve that dilemma, that intertextual dilemma, you can pick up my book, Paul and the Meaning of Scripture. But anyway, this text about God loving the the not loved and calling the not my people, my people here for Paul, that's a reference to the Gentiles. Okay. That's the context. And the point is that surprisingly the non-elect, the not my people, they are part of the elect. They are part of the my people. This, this essentially reverses the plight of Esau and Ishmael. And this is actually a point, as I recall, that was made by Ross Wagner um, in his Heralds of the Good News book. It's a great book. You should pick it up. Um, but anyway, the idea is that even the unelected nations, even, you know, Esau and Ishmael, those two that were rejected Right. And remember how Paul's giving a, le- a lesson in election in earlier parts of Romans nine? He says, "God has elected um, Jacob, not Esau. H- okay, he's he, Esau is not part of the my people there. Um, Ishmael is not part of the group. He's not part of the elect. It's it's Isaac. Now here, all of that is reversed. It's a it's a it's a remarkable reversal. And the idea, the point is that even the unelected nations can be elected." if they are in Christ. For Paul, in other words, the pivot point of election is Christological. And for those who are unbelieving Jews, they are counted as the non-elect. They're counted as among the hardened. Of course, not every Jew is hardened. There is a remnant founded upon Christ. And this is the stuff of Romans 2. This is why Paul is in anguish in the first part of Romans 9. Um, to give us an idea where all this is going, think again of the Genesis eleven twelve narrative. Israel was elected to be the rescue plan for the world. Through Israel, in other words, the Gentiles would be blessed and they would be healed. But how has that plan worked out? Has that plan been, has it been derailed by Israel's unbelief in the Messiah? Well, in Romans 11, Paul will show that it has not been derailed. For it is through Israel's unbelief that the gospel of Jesus went to the Gentiles. And when the gospel went to the Gentiles, and when they believed the gospel, they, the Gentiles, became part of the my people. They became part of the elect. And as part of the elect, the Gentiles are now part of Abraham's family. Remember Romans 4. And guess what? As part of Abraham's family, the Gentiles are part of the rescue plan for the world. And that world includes other Gentiles, but it also includes unbelieving Jews. And Paul says in Romans 11 that it is through the Gentiles' acceptance of the gospel that Israel will be driven to jealousy, and in turn, they will accept the Messiah. And that's how the plan works. Israel leads Gentiles to faith, and the Gentiles lead Israel to faith. And as Genesis 12 says, Abraham's family will be a blessing and they will be blessed. And in Christ, both Jews and Gentiles can be blessed and be a blessing to one another. And this fulfills the covenant promises of Genesis 12. That's how election works. So another piece of evidence that Paul has been all along talking about election in the context of the corporate and not simply the individual aspect is found in verses 30 through 33. In these verses, we also see that the pivot point of election is Christology. In other words, we see that Paul advocates for a Christological view of election. The whole point is to answer his critics as to how uncircumcised Gentiles can be in covenant with God and and why some Jews are not. His answer centers around his Christology. He says this verses 30 through 33. What then are we to say? Gentiles who did not strive for righteousness have attained it that is, a righteousness through faith. But Israel who did not strive for the righteousness that is based on the law, I'm sorry, but Israel who did strive for the righteousness that is based on the law, did not succeed in fulfilling the law. Why not? Because they did not strive for it on the basis of faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, see, I am laying in Zion a stone that will make people stumble, a rock that will make them fall. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. The point again is this. Paul has two groups of people that he is dealing with. He has Jews and Gentiles. The unbelieving Jews who keep Torah do not end up fulfilling Torah. In other words, they do not end up keeping covenant, and hence neither can they maintain their chosen, elect, vocational status as God's people in this way. But those Gentiles who believe in Jesus and yet don't keep Torah, they are nevertheless fulfilling Torah. They are fulfilling the law. And hence, they are part of the group of the chosen, the elect, those whose vocational status is that of the God's people. The not my people in Christ are now called my people. The non-elect in Christ are now called the elect. And as the elect, these believers, whether Jew or Gentile, they are participating in the vocation given to Abraham's family. Christians are to be a blessing to the nations. And as a redeemed people covered in the righteous status of God's chosen elect one, namely Jesus the Messiah, Christians are not only called to take the blessing to the nations, they are also equipped by the Spirit to do so. Okay, so there's a ton more that I want to say, but I'm so intent on getting this main point across that I'm hesitant to get further into the weeds. I've said this before, and I'll say it again. But one of the big problems people have in reading Romans is they forget the big picture, and as a result, there's little awareness as to how you know say Romans 2 should impact the way we read Romans 9. There's little consideration given for how Romans 1 helps us to understand Romans 9 through 11, or how Romans 4 fits into the equation, or you know let's not forget Romans 8. Romans 8 tends to be forgotten too, and Romans 7. My goodness, definitely that. Sometimes we just have this this temptation to, to segregate each individual part of Romans. And it kind of becomes its own, own little story without any relation to the other parts. And I don't want to make that mistake. I just don't want to do that. I mean, the trees are super important. Don't get me wrong. But we simply cannot forget the forest as well. We have to keep it in mind. That big picture has to be remembered. And so if I could sum up Romans as a whole, I think I would do it this way. Romans is Paul's way of showing how the Jewish story is unfolded in Christ. Romans is Paul's way of showing how the Jewish story and the story of Jewish election and um, righteousness, how all of that is unfolded in Jesus the Messiah. That's the end of today's episode, and thanks again for listening to The Bible Unmuted. If you like this podcast, consider rating it on your podcast platform, subscribing to it, and sharing with your friends. You can also support the podcast by becoming a Patreon member. Go to patreon.com slash thebibleunmuted, or simply find the link to the Patreon page in the description for this episode. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, friends.